0: Okay, I think we're ready. Um, Could I just remind you, because I had to remind myself to turn your phone off. I know this is a a session about our attachment to those digital things, but at the moment it'd be really good to turn them off so they don't interrupt this session. Um, Also, thank you for attending this festival, but I do need to reinforce some key conditions of the COVID management plan approved by SA Health. Please maintain social distancing wherever possible. We strongly encourage the wearing of masks and ask you to follow directions given by the COVID marshals, venue staff and volunteers. And we thank you for your support of the Writers' Festival. My name's Sharon Davis, and before I introduce our guest, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on today, the Kaurna people of the Adelaide Plains, who lived and hunted at this place for many thousands of years and pay our respects to their Elders past, present and emerging. And I'd also like to acknowledge any members of the community who are in the audience. And I just want to add that if you're having trouble over there hearing this session today because of the wind, which may be interrupting the sound, over this side, in the last session, I could hear perfectly. So if you need to move, move over there. Now, let me introduce our guest. You may know her best as a regular con- columnist for The Guardian, but Van Baden has had many more strings to her bow. She's an award-winning theatre maker and novelist, critic, trade unionist and feminist, and her work has appeared in many places, including The New York Times and Junkie. Her latest book, Q and On and On, is a frightening examination of the modern conspiracy community, which largely plays itself out on the internet. It could be comical if it weren't so serious. Hillary Clinton is a sexual predator who eats babies. A pedophile ring runs out of a pizza shop and sends its messages out in code, where the word sauce means orgy and cheese means a little girl, or that a particular person is really an alien lizard, but the massacre in Christchurch and the storming of the Capitol in Washington also have their genesis in this space, and it's being fertilised by an influential community of right-wing politicians and their advisers. Are we in the era of digital brown shirts? Van, thanks for coming. We'll talk more about the digital brown shirts in a minute. That was more general question overarching. Oh, I thought that was the first
1: question. I was like, yeah, we're totally are. <laughs> let's just Let's just hit the ground running. Yes, we are in the, in the era of digital brown shirts. Sorry. Sorry,
0: everyone. For this book, you went undercover online for a year. What led you down this path and were there dangers in that?
1: Um, yeah, first of all, I want to acknowledge that I'm on Aboriginal land today. I live on the land of the Wathaurong people, so I always like to make the recognition that this is one continent with many nations within it. Um, And it's such a beautiful place to be. I love Adelaide. Literally never had a bad time here. Um... What motivated me to go down the rabbit hole? So, I have always had a fascination with the far right. I was telling Sharon this morning that my first encounter with the far right was when I was at high school in Cogra in Sydney, in a very multicultural suburb, and my high school got attacked by a group of fascists fascists who who, uh, covered the school in spray-painted racist slogans. And it was at the time that I was studying the Second World War and the rise of Nazism at school, and to suddenly see that these people were still with us was sort of the source of, like, a deep and abiding fear and a sense of responsibility that if the things that I was learning at school had happened in the past, I had a responsibility as a democratic citizen to ensure that they wouldn't happen in the future. Um, I have been involved in activist causes, social justice and left-wing causes uh, from my youth to my adult life. Uh, I did go off to be a theatre maker and spend a lot of time in London and then uh, making theatre, where you don't tend to meet a lot of fascists, a lot of dictators perhaps, but not a lot of fascists. And then I came back to Australia and started writing for The Guardian and all of a sudden the fascists found me. So, I mean, in in my house, uh, a day where I get death threats from Nazis, the joke is it's just a day ending in Y... And they have stalked me, threatened me, sent packages of disgusting things to my house, um, and I've had quite the adventure with them. I've gotten so used to the background noise of being harassed on the internet that you know I file everything. I have like a filing system for death threats. You know, what's the level of death threat? Is it a rape threat? Is it just a, you're fat? You know, so I can sort of sort them out and see where the threat is coming from. And then a few years ago, I started seeing this like. Because, um, I, you know, I go to the accounts that harass me. By the way, if any of my trolls are in the audience, I go to the accounts that harass me and I profile them. Hi. Um, and... Bonjour. Um, and I started going through these accounts and seeing this really apocalyptic language, like, more extreme than just, you know, shut up, you communist whore, which I get a lot. And was like... It had almost a religious element to it about this battle of dark and light and, and references to this prophet called Q. And I was like, what on earth is this? And it was sort of a new strain of online abuse, so it got its own folder. And then gradually I started seeing references to Q and this internet prophet start turning up in American journalism. And American media had picked up on the fact that there was something extremely weird going on in corners of the internet that only really internet-obsessed people spend time in, like image board culture, places like 4chan and 8chan and other sort of corners of the internet uh, where people who value their lives and their sanity tend not to roam. And that this account had started giving these sort of predictions... Claiming to be an undercover agent, something to do with, uh, you know, the American Secret Services, who was spilling the beans on uh, on a plot by a great hero, Donald Trump, and his, you know, loyal um, white hats, like these secret heroes, were going to take down a pedophile cabal run by Hillary Clinton, who apparently eats babies' faces to make herself look young in various basements. And it was the I'd heard a bit about the Pizzagate theory, which was this idea that Hillary Clinton and her offsiders were literally eating children in the in the basement of a Washington restaurant that turned out to not even have a
0: basement. But it was perpetuating and so I was like, there's then, something can in I this. Just, can I just jump in here? Where were you seeing this? Where online were you seeing this? Well, I was seeing it in Twitter accounts and these references to it. And I followed
1: it. And I followed it through Facebook and I followed it through Reddit and various other internet communities. And because, like, I have a, a really engaged political following on social media, people who read my work in The Guardian who follow me on Twitter and Facebook... And who often bring things to my attention. Like I, I use my social media quite socially to find out where people are at politically. And I asked my following, I was like, "Have you? Have any of you had encounters with this QAnon community and these people who follow the prophet called Q?" And I got 600 responses in a day from people overwhelmingly Australian, although there were people from like Canada and the US and the UK who were saying, yes, my brother, my uncle, my cousin, a friend of mine, a guy at work, you know, my mum, they have started getting drawn into this cult community. And it was sort of standard conspiracy theory stuff. And in the course of researching the book, like the origin of those evil bad people who secretly run the government and, you know, live in tunnels under restaurants, it's 2,500 years old. Like there are conspiracy theories with the exact same in- imagery that date to the Romans. But it was scooping people up. And of course, as the pandemic took off and everybody... I was in Victoria, people were trapped at home, you know, spending more time than they ever had online. You were hearing more and more and more of it. And it was getting very disturbing, because it was... It was a process of radicalisation, where people who were feeling, isolated or distressed because the external environment had changed, were being dragged into these internet communities, quite willingly, though, yeah. looking for very simple answers to complex problems. OK, so who or what is QAnon? So, the... Q is a person or group of people. Uh, there are various theories on who they are as, in, as an individual or group um, that have been put forward, but no-one has actually claimed to be Q properly. Um, who started posting on the internet image board 4chan. 4chan is like this internet wild west where overwhelmingly the kind of guys who work in IT and play a lot of computer games tend to hang out and where anything goes and everybody makes ironic jokes about Nazism and then heaps of Nazis turn up. It's dark, like it's a dark and nasty place and q started posting these claims that hillary clinton was about to be arrested and that and that you know the forces of donald trump were coming to you know clamp down on evil hillary and her minions and this was in uh, october, towards the end of october in 2017 then it moved to an even worse website called 8chan which is now called 8corn where that whoever this Q person was started posting there. And there are like thousands of these posts, all written in code. But as I, uh, in the research of my book, a lot of the sort of terms used that are supposed to convey this authenticity as this, you know, secret agent who's giving clues as to what's really going on are things from like Robert Ludlam novels and... Tom Clancy, and my dad loved those novels so I sort of grew up with them and, I, and you're like, hang on, I'm sure I've read this before,
0: yeah. you know, the fans have yeah. sort of... I was kind garlic. of surprised that all of this actually grew out of the gaming community.
1: Yeah, well, gamers hung out on 4chan to talk about video games. Like 4chan, 4chan is a platform. 4chan is is a website yeah. where people just chat all the time and it's overwhelmingly anonymous. And people, because it's anonymous, people say disgusting things there. And it's sort of, you know, if I don't know how many of you are avid gamers, but when you're playing sort of um, active computer games with 15-year-old boys, there's a lot of really horrific language and, and boundary pushing that goes on while you're playing. And that was sort of the foundation of 4chan. Like, it was a website designed by a 15-year-old boy to sort of facilitate conversations about anime and, you know, Japanese cartoons and computer games and cars and girls and, and things like that. And it really developed this culture
0: of outrage. You so, know, So this person called Q starts posting on these, this channel or this message board Yeah, and they're really obscure posts actually aren't they? Oh, like, they're,
1: they're, they're weird, they're almost incomprehensible and you sort of have to know internet culture and particularly the culture of 4chan to understand them and one of the, the things that happens on 4chan, so it's like a discussion, like it's like a constantly unrolling conversation. And it developed this culture of people pretending to be high-level insiders or or secret agents or corporate spies. And they call it LARPing, which is an acronym for live-action role-playing, where people... It was like a game where these guys who hung out on 4chan would pretend to be whatever, and you would see how long you could sort of string the story around. And it's full of in-jokes and references to conversations that have already been had... On, on 4chan, and but what happened with, with Q was that these posts got picked up very quickly, like within four days, uh, a couple of active participants of the site teamed up with a sort of fringe conspiracy theorist called at Tracy Beans was her internet name, and they started a, a Reddit channel where they talked about these posts and gave them this sort of veneer of seriousness and attracted the, the kind of people who hang out on Reddit to talk about this stuff. What I talk about in my book is about how the internet has become a pipeline where different communities are attracted to different sides. Like, that's the big joke now is young people aren't on Facebook because your mum is on Facebook. You know, a certain kind of person is on Twitter. A different kind of person is on Reddit or 4chan or, 8, or 8kun, as it's now known. Or, or on... T- like, young people are on TikTok. Some people are on Instagram. And there are ways that if you're trying to get specifically political messages out into the broader community, you know, campaign theorists and strategists study who is where and target messages towards certain communities and use some places on the internet to incubate those messages and sort of message test them. Will the people who are from this demographic, who might be susceptible to voting this way or that way, or people who might be willing to go to a demonstration or activate around certain issues, where are they and where? what are the messages that are likely to get them moving? Yeah. And so when this crazy 4chan story of Q, this mysterious supposed secret agent, went to Reddit, it found a different community. And then from Reddit, it went to Facebook. And soon it was all over the internet, like a community of people who were sharing this sort of group-devised mythology, you know, and thinking that they were part of a movement of people who were... In possession of like sacred knowledge like having an inside track to what was really going on and that donald trump's presidency may have looked like a complete and total disaster but was really like this amazing story about plucky hero donald trump taking on the pedophiles of the deep state and evil um hillary clinton who they blame for everything by the way including like fluoride in water and the murder of jfk
0: which which has you know people are laughing Um, it sounds pretty crazy. So when does it go from these crazy theories to something more mainstream and dangerous? What what sparks that? Well, I mean, this is the thing. These communities
1: and, and really what I talk about in the book, they exist because people want to believe in these things. For whatever reason, uh, because people have an ide- like, because people are ideologically extremely right-wing, uh, or because people want really simple answers to really complex problems. So I interviewed psychologists and, and went through a lot of research when I was doing the book to go. Why do people want to believe that Hillary Clinton eats children? Mm. And it's like because it's really easy to vote against Hillary Clinton if you allow yourself to believe she eats children. I mean, that's a, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to vote for somebody who eats children, you know, no matter which political party they're from. Um, so there's that. But also, we live in a in the most information saturated society on earth, where it actually takes a lot of work with the fragmentation of media to discern what's true. I mean, we can see that with Putin's war in Ukraine. Like, there has been so much disinformation and propaganda. Where are the pictures coming from? Are they true? Which sources can we trust? Who do I listen to? Who's got the right insight? And even amongst experts, there are always competing points of view. And if you're trying to get a handle on a world that is distressing you, the idea that somebody's going, hey, it really breaks down to black hats and white hats, Trump versus Clinton, good versus bad, and if you're with us, you're on the side of the righteous, that's really appealing to people who are in distress. Yeah,
0: but there's a there's a logic jump, you know, to, to dislike... Hillary Clinton and what she stands for is quite different than believing that Hillary Clinton eats babies. I mean, how does that logic jump get made? Because I mean, it's about the it's about force
1: of will. It's about really what people want to believe. But what sort of trips them over is what people who study cults call the sealed information environment. Like if you've ever known somebody who's been a member of a cult and, you know, I interviewed people who'd been in um, meditation cults and um, yoga cults and all kinds of niche communities that, you know, get created. Uh, What happens is the cult becomes everything and it becomes the only community that you trust and becomes a one-way channel of information and one of the ways that cults maintain control over people is to convince them not to trust anybody else I mean uh, you know I don't know if you've heard the term like suppressive person is something that they use in various cults to distance people from their families or their friends don't trust them the information they give you is a lie we are the only ones with the truth and the internet has facilitated that on this extraordinary scale where the internet can make itself look like news and the internet can give you so much input that the idea that you would be reading critically just represents such an enormous effort that if somebody's saying, don't read the New York Times, don't watch CNN, don't read the Guardian, don't read the Herald, Sun," like whatever it is... It's sort of a relief because it's like, right, so these are the sources that we trust and these are the conversations I can follow and all my friends online are backing this particular point of view. It is so unbelievably dangerous because you get people who are channeled into propaganda where they genuinely believe that things that are not true are true because that's the only input that they're getting and they're not trusting things anymore. I mean, it's extraordinary to consider, you know, with the with the outcome of the US election. I mean, there were people who were so immersed in this sealed information environment that the idea that Biden would win that election was impossible for them because all of their information was that Trump was going to prevail and, you know, that evil was going to be defeated and this was going to happen. And those are the people who get mobilised to attack the Capitol building on January 6th, an absolute sense of conviction, because that is the only information they've let themselves consume.
0: Yes, well, that was my next question, because, in fact, what happened was this cult that you're talking about, this QAnon cult that grew online then was harnessed by people like one of Trump's key advisors, Steve Bannon. Can you talk about how they harnessed that and used it to actually, you know, uh, aid Trump's cause?
1: Oh, so Steve Bannon really emerges as the villain um, of my book. So Steve Matt Bannon was... He's an extraordinary person. Um, He's both brilliant and... And I'm going to say this unambiguously incredibly evil and a direct threat to the future of Western democracy. And that's not a joke. Like, he is um, dedicated to a, a vision of society which is monocultural, hierarchical and not democratic. And Steve Bannon built the Trump campaign before they had a candidate. Like, and he's he doesn't support uh, immigration. He was behind things like what they called the Muslim ban... Um, he is militaristic, he hangs out with Alexander Dugan, who is Putin's favourite neo-fascist theorist, uh, he's quoted Nazis at speeches he's given at the Vatican, like all kinds of really dark, horrible politics that I think most people in the West thought we had all left behind at the rather conclusive end to World War II. And Bannon had built this, like, national popul- nationalist populist campaign where he was trying to reshape the United States of America into what, you know, social theorists and political observers have called a white state, you know, with a, with a monocultural version of America as this horrible sort of hierarchical neo-fascist place. And Steve Bannon's background, I mean, he had been in the military... Then he went to become a merchant banker. He worked for Goldman Sachs. Um, he was one of the early investors in Seinfeld. And, of course, Seinfeld is on television somewhere in the world at any given point. Every time somebody shows Seinfeld, Steve Bannon makes some money. But he was very close with a, an American right-winger called Andrew Breitbart, who started an internet magazine called Breitbart, where he Andrew Breitbart was on the right and he wanted to sort of, you know, push... Uh, he had, Breitbart had this very brilliant political analysis which was politics flows downstream from culture. So if you want to change the way people engage politically, you, you have to create cultural spaces to propagate those ideas. And there, a magazine, a cultural event, you know, ceremonies, rituals, behaviours, these are what you encourage in people in order for that to flow downstream to the behaviour of politicians. Breitbart died... And Bannon took over Breitbart. And he pursued this very explicit hard right agenda, attacking feminists, attacking multiculturalism, you know, making mockeries of democratic ideals about inclusion and diversity, as if diversity was an evil communist plot. And it's really quite extreme stuff. It's stuff that we hadn't seen in the West, like I said, for a really long time. And he built a political vehicle for that, which they found Donald Trump to represent, like to campaign politically on the cultural platforms that that Bannon and people like him had established in not only Breitbart, but obviously uh, Bannon was behind Cambridge Analytica, which was the a research firm that was that got all the stolen Facebook data and was using Facebook data to target political messages to people. He started an organisation called the Government Accountability Institute, which was basically an ongoing dirt unit to supply progressive leaning publications with dirt on progressive politicians. So they were obsessed with Hillary Clinton and constantly um, creating like, like, like all of this dirt on her, anything she'd ever touched, finding a way of channelling it towards sort of bastion liberal publications or broadcasters to get these messages. But how are they using QAnon
0: specifically? Well,
1: I mean, this is the thing. Like, Bannon um, had... When he was at Goldman Sachs, he'd participated in the investment... Um, of a, basically a currency trade of a, of a game called World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft is like a multiplayer game uh, where, you know, everybody goes off to kill orcs with axes and, and things. And to buy various tools you've got in, within the game, you have to earn certain credits. And there was a company that was farming credits by employing kids in Asia to play the game during the day as like a job to earn credits that Western kids would then buy. And they were setting up all of these currency It's the craziest stuff. And gamers turned on this enterprise that Bannon was investing in and Bannon's investment lost millions of dollars. And he became fascinated with gamer culture, the kind of culture that was based around 4chan. He described it as having monster power, that these, you know, these kids who were part of this community were basically willing to say and do anything and could do it through the internet because they were digital natives. And all of this stuff started... Like, like I said, the message testing on places on 4chan and, and politics flowing downstream from culture, he employed a guy called Milo Yiannopoulos, who some of you may have heard of, who was like this... And this alt-right figure. This was all, you know, encouraged by Bannon to create, like, identities and celebrities and had Milo Yiannopoulos reporting on game culture and the kind of things that 4chan would recycle and reperpetuate, and and meme culture and this sort of really specific internet stuff, but with a visual and communication and a political potency that then spread through the internet through all these different pipelines. And, of course, QAnon is, is part of that because it's part of that community, just a more, like, specific and extreme and, like, these sort of they actually describe themselves as digital warriors, these people who go on the internet to take their messages from Q and their instructions and and interpret them and work out what to do next and and viciously pushing these internet rumours... Because what happens is you start getting doubt. Like, very few people in a mainstream conversation would think that Hillary Clinton eats children. Mm. But you have people who go, oh, well, you know, most conspiracy theories have a grain of truth in them. There is no truth about that woman eating children. Can I just tell you, I've spent a year of my life making very, very sure I'm on a solid platform of celebrities not eating children. Um, but. It's that kind of doubt and confusion. They're standard disinformation techniques. They're about people going, it's too hard, it's too weird, I don't really trust anybody. And that kind of communication is extremely powerful in the West as an electoral campaign tactic.
0: And and how did Trump play into that? Did Trump endorse QAnon in any way? Oh, yeah. I mean, Trump gave these sort of obscure,
1: I don't know who QAnon are. I don't know who this community of people who believe these internet rumours are, but I hear they like me. And this was seen by the QAnon community as like a nod and a wink to the fact that the work they were doing, spreading these insane stories about, you know, children in tunnels being eaten by Democrats. It was seen as like a recognition of that. And they they fed off it. I mean, there were um, Trump video, campaign videos that were made holding up QAnon signs and babies in Q t-shirts. And it became part of the mythos of of Trump and part of the visual imagery. Like I said, like a nod and a wink that this might be true and he never said it was true and never really explicitly identified with the movement. But for a, a group of conspiracy theorists who've been told they're fighting this righteous war, that was incredibly powerful. I mean, there were people who were QAnon believers who went, and I write about them in my book, who went to January 6th
0: and died there. They January 6th were... is the Capitol storming. Yeah,
1: the storming of mm. the Capitol. And they, they were so literally light-in-the-eyes believers of this internet mythology. And they lost their lives participating in that action in defence of, like, a, a, pres- a you know then-former president, about to be former president, who didn't really acknowledge it but didn't disavow it, who certainly didn't clamp down on it. And it's a really extraordinary story. I mean, I found it very difficult to write the book because I wanted, to, I wanted to feel sorry for these people. I wanted to... I had what I ended up describing as cold empathy, which was I felt very sorry for them and I thought the tragedies that befell them as individuals were horrific because they were avoidable. But at the same time, I saw so many horrible things, and undercover witnessed so many absolutely evil conversations that I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't bond with them. I couldn't recognise a common humanity. I yeah. realised they were just incredibly dangerous. Yeah,
0: I, I think we should point out that for people who haven't seen some of these posts, that they're not only sort of crazy in terms of baby-eating and all the rest of it, but they're incredibly violent. Mm. They're incredibly misogynistic. Um, You've been attacked many times by some of these people online, but um, we're not just talking about crazy conspiracy theories here. We're talking about violent images. We're talking about, like, the most extreme. Oh, the most extreme stuff you could
1: imagine. And I'll give you a recent example so... During, um, there was a coronavirus outbreak in the Northern Territory and the Northern Territory government uh, locked down, which obviously they needed to do. You know, very difficult to manage an outbreak in Northern Territory. Um, Michael Gunner, who's the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, made statements going, look, we have to do this, this is what's going on. The conspiracy community picked up Gunner as you know, as an agent of the deep state and started pumping out all of this propaganda that this was a cover because US soldiers were gonna be shipped into tunnels that run under the Northern Territory. A lot of these people are American, don't necessarily have fantastic geographical analysis of Australia and maybe just how large that particular part of the country is. But you know, there were all of these theories in the rest of it. And these communities are so, like I said, sealed information environments. When you feed them a villain, those communities deploy and attack that individual. So Michael Gunner ended up in the situation that while trying to maintain an outbreak of coronavirus in a very complex community and obviously large, remote Indigenous communities living on country, very vulnerable to coronavirus Um, he was receiving death threats against the life of his two-year-old child. Mm. And I saw these conversations happening in real time because I was undercover in these communities and people making threats against a two-year-old on the basis of nonsense, like absolute invented mythology about a government that was taking exactly the action that it needed to take. That's beyond a, let's have a democratic conversation about representing points of view. That is getting into the tactics of of domestic extremism and trying to literally hound people out of government, compromise the work they're doing, sow chaos, and erode them as individuals. And that's the real danger of these cults. They're not huge, like, they're not... They're by no means a majority of the population. They're not even a significant minority. Some research came out in the UK the other day saying that it's maybe like a third of a percent of the population are vulnerable to this stuff. But that doesn't matter. If you have a conversation of people who are so immersed that they are literally threatening the life of a two-year-old child, that is enough people to cause serious disruption to democracy.
0: I'm glad you talked about the Northern Territory, because when we talk about QAnon, we automatically think over there, the United States, they're crazies there, they're all, you know, gun-carrying crazies uh, that are a part of QAnon. Um, But in fact, QAnon has uh, some base in Australia as well. Oh, absolutely.
1: And there were heaps of QAnon in the anti-lockdown protests in Melbourne. I mean... I was watching this online, hiding in that community, watching them get ready and paint banners and participate in the anti-lockdown stuff. I saw them um, talk about Gunner, I saw, and they're all off. They've all been off in Canberra with their convoy to Canberra and setting up that camp. I mean, they're definitely here. Australia has the fourth largest community of um, QAnon believers online. There are more QAnon believers in Australia than there are in Russia. Um, But QAnon is everywhere. They're in, obviously, America, Britain, Canada. A lot of the participants in the trucker convoy in Canada would be referred to as, like, QAnon aligned. They're in Japan. They're in Israel, which is extraordinary, because so much of the QAnon mythos, you know, the cabal, the deep state, they're concepts that uh, that have been laundered through hundreds of years of anti-Semitic attacks. You know, like stereotypes um, of Jewish people. Like this is a very big part of the QAnon thing. It's there. Like it's this absolute like anti-Semitic ha- anti-Semitic hatred that saturates the mythology of that particular movement. And yet there are QAnon believers in Israel. And it's extraordinary because. Every community sort of adapts the sort of QAnon thing, the deep state, the people underground, these evil, you know, black hats, they call them who are off stealing the children that Hillary Clinton, the uber-bad person, is going to eat. Look, I just want to be very clear. Every time I say it, I feel awful. Like, I feel awful. I feel like it's disgusting and so ridiculous, and yet there are people who have literally been willing to give their lives and risk their lives to prosecute, the nuttery of that idea. But different communities adapt it in different ways. In Japan, the theory, it's like an octopus, has uh, the the conspiracy community around it in Japan sort of involves the Japanese imperial family and blames them for the triple disaster, the tsunami, nuclear accident, earthquake, that somehow they were behind it. And these, like, extraordinary fancies that sort of Mm. get workshopped by these communities to find the idea that will just explain everything, position them as the good guys in this ultimate battle of good and evil. You also
0: mentioned Russia.
1: What's their role in all of this? Oh, the Russians love this stuff. They absolutely, they love it. So the word disinformation is actually, a, it comes from a, a, a Soviet term. And the Russians have recognised for decades um, the role of disinformation as a, another front in ongoing war. Like, so you have your Air Force and you have your Land Army and you have a Navy and you have your disinformation troops. And one of the people who I interviewed in the book is a scholar um, from the Wilson Center in the United States called Nina Yankovic, who studied Russian disinformation campaigning in Ukraine, which has been going on for years, and also in Estonia, and wrote about it in this fabulous book that I certainly, if you're interested in my book, you should definitely read hers. And it's about sowing chaos and doubt and creating social polarizations. And the way that the Russians have, like, practised disinformation warfare over the decades is by, not by inventing creatures for Westerners to hate, but to look at where there are points of division and fracture and mistrust in democratic societies and amplifying them. And Nina's book begins with this extraordinary scene where she's, you know, by day she's a disinformation scholar, by night she's really into amdram and does a lot of amateur musicals and lives in Washington and had all these friends from the Washington, like, amateur musical community who had been encouraged online to participate in a Sing the Songs of Les Mis against Donald Trump. And all these friends of hers who were, like, progressive, sort of switched on left-wing people who also like musicals, were dressing up in their Lay costumes and going to sing Lay Miz songs at the White House, at the same time that a group of pro-Trump protesters were going down there as well. And through her research, which includes, like, data analysis, she realised that these two groups of people had been encouraged to participate in this separate anti-opposing protest by the same data source. So they were being set up to be played off against one another. The thing with QAnon is that it only took four days for this story to appear on 4chan for, like, Russian-backed accounts online, because all of this stuff can eventually be traced. Once you know it's there, you can backtrack and find the data. Have you
0: been doing that? Have you been following I don't trials? do data
1: analysis, but I use the analysis of uh, people who do that. I mean, that's pretty specialist research. But I use that in the book and talked about it. But within four days, there were 4,000 Russian-backed accounts that were promoting QAnon and giving it amplification and engaging with various... ..and getting the information in front of various influencers who had been identified in that kind of space. And it's really precise. There's a group called Logically, who are data researchers, who are fantastic who were the ones who crunched the numbers on the Melbourne anti-lockdown protests and found out that those Melbourne protests and, you know, Dictator Dan and... ..were being organised by an extremist group in Germany. You know, this is... ..this is how the internet has been opened up as a front for disinformation war. It is particularly interesting for me to do this speech this week because uh, I have been noticing a a change in the... uh, the temperature of my internet engagements and those of some very influential accounts that I follow in the United States and Britain, because uh, there are rather a lot of accounts that seem to be either offline or busy doing something else, and certain kinds of flavours to political conversation have changed since, uh, since resources, I think, have probably been concentrated more in Ukraine.
0: Right. How many of those people that we saw in those Melbourne protests or in the recent protests in Canberra would be followers of QAnon? Well, the
1: ones who tend to wear the merch, and there's quite an industry around it. Like, I talk in the book, I talk about conspiracy entrepreneurialism and conspiracy entrepreneurs, the people who just make money from this stuff, and they sell... You can buy it. Sweatshirts and shot glasses and belts, proclaiming your loyalty to the QAnon cause... Um, the main issue is that it, you don't have to be a doctrinaire Q believer, you don't have to be one of the people who gets up in the morning, and people do get up in the morning waiting, because he's, he or she or they, um, whoever Q is, has been offline since just after the US election when Trump lost, um, but that community still exists, and they sort of cross-pollinate with others. So So you've seen... the anti-vax
0: movement... Yeah, so you...
1: They call it... Sociologists call it fusion paranoia, where different groups who have different sort of pet issues, like anti-vaxism, and in Australia that's been particularly associated with fringe elements of the wellness community, like, you know, I clean eat, I do yoga, I, you know, meditate to a candle and I refuse to get a vaccination. That is, a, you know, and I don't want big pharma or big government putting something into my body. Um, that, fu- that, there was a fusion of that por- paranoia around, yeah, yeah, the deep state are uh, injecting us with microchips and we'll all be controlled by 5G towers and Bill Gates. Like, that's, I mean, that's, they're literally saying this. I'm not making this up. I'm just reporting from the front lines. So you have these two supposedly unalike movements that come together going, yeah. Yeah they're injecting us with stuff and it's a government conspiracy that makes every side of that more susceptible to the the sort of octopus-like conspiracy ideas. And that's how QAnon got into Australia, was through the wellness community and these sort of anti-vax channels. In America, it's based more around, you know, an established hard right and your sort of oath keepers and three percenters and, and those sort of militias and militia culture in America and that particular kind of political identity but Germany was the same that the QAnon idea got in through wellness and sort of new age beliefs and it was interesting a lot of the people who I spoke to in my research who had family who'd been caught up in QAnon were like my uncle was a north like a north coast hippie in New South Wales and we were so used to him you know, being about, like, crystals and love beads and now he's telling me Hillary Clinton needs babies. And it's like, well, yeah, because that's the fusion paranoia and there are plenty of people online who are making, I've got to say, significant amounts of money selling that as, like, a product, like selling contact with those beliefs in these communities and merchandise and talks and podcasts. They're making money from encouraging people into that environment.
0: We've seen... uh, I mean, you... There's a chapter at the front of your book about it, and we saw a Four Corners last year about um, uh, Scott, Scott Morrison and his possible relationship with support, as supporter of QAnon, and uh, the, I think the husband of somebody who works on his staff or did work on his staff. Is there any validity in the fact in in the assertion that's been made that? Morrison has been influenced in any way by QAnon?
1: Well, certainly in the book I go into some detail about the relationship of the Prime Minister of Australia with his QAnon-believing friend, who he you know, whose wedding he attended who, like there is a very close relationship between the Prime Minister and a guy who has been pushing this mythology on the internet, Um, that's desperately concerning. That guy and um, his partner who, the partner was on uh, the staff of Kirribilli House, which is the alternative prime ministerial residence for Scott Morrison they were staying at Kirribilli House when the Morrisons were in America on a state visit and it's extraordinary to think that the Prime Minister entrusted somebody who's associated with a movement that the FBI has labelled a domestic terrorism threat was given, you know, was given the keys to Kirribilli House. I mean, and we can go, oh, well, he's not going to harm his friend. Well, Scott Morrison's not going to be Prime Minister forever. And the idea that somebody who was literally on the internet sharing the deep state cabal stuff is really concerning and there was the issue which I go into detail with around the book that Four Corners talked about how when Morrison was given giving his uh, apology on behalf of the government to the victims of institutional sexual abuse the term ritual abuse was inserted into the speech with no consultation from any of the groups who would participated in the Royal Commission and ritual abuse is of course a dog whistle to this community who believe that Satan-worshipping pedophiles like Hillary Clinton are stealing children from the streets. And the, there were some extremely shady characters who participated in the channel of information of, of these people around the Prime Minister, who may... or And the Prime Minister has denied it, but whose yeah. key... Um, claims and insistences, there's, like, a body of evidence there that suggests that those conversations were had. And that's really, really disturbing. Because, like I said, Scott Morrison is not going to be Prime Minister forever. And if you're looking at a community of people who are willing to believe the most extraordinary fictions about their political opponents, not on the basis of rejecting them ideologically, but literally portraying them as Satan worshippers, that's really... Dangerous influence and knowledge to have, and it's it's a it's a real concern. Like you see the effect in the United States, where you have QAnon believers like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a congressional representative from Georgia. She's she's taken these beliefs and this mythology with her into actual representative. Um, you know, political representation. She's in the Congress, she's giving speeches and responding to political activity and getting airtime and having a platform in national media as somebody who is in Congress pursuing this lens of it's a battle of dark and light against, you know, Satan and the rest of us. And it's chilling, it's absolutely terrifying.
0: Um, We've only got about 10 minutes for questions, but we will take some questions if there are any here. There's... I knew there would be a few questions. I'm going to ask you to make questions and not statements and to keep them very short, please.
1: Thank you. I own the book and I share it and I think everyone should get it because it's so well documented. You might tell... I would like you to tell people about Julie Bishop's Red Shoes and Jessie Stewart. Oh, the Julie Bishop red shoes thing is extraordinary. So, what an amazing coincidence that Julie Bishop, who of course at one point was the most popular Liberal politician in this country and had significant support amongst the Liberal voting base to be leader of the Liberal Party, Um, the Stewart family, who are these, you know, QAnon-believing associates of the Prime Minister, were pumping out material online, and I'm really sure it was just a coincidence, using established QAnon, QAnon mythology that members of the Cabal, the Deep State, the Baby Eaters, wear red shoes. Um, and red shoes in the QAnon mythos uh, one of the ways that the cabal identify themselves to one another, apparently because when they murder children, you can't see the blood if they're wearing red shoes. So they wear red shoes to communicate with one another that they're all in on the on the cabal. And, of course, Julie Bishop infamously wore this pair of red shoes when she was essentially out the door in terms of her political career. And this was shared by um, members of the Stuart family online as, you know, coincidence, big question mark, with this implication that she was part... And, of course, other QAnon people pick up on this and share all these images going, yeah, 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 she's wearing red shoes, she's into it. And they have this whole sort of mythos where they talk about, like, hand gestures and and symbols and clothing and things to do with owls. Um, that all of these things that you can you can find celebrities on the internet basically doing anything. You can find pictures of any celebrity wearing red shoes or doing something that vaguely looks like an owl or visiting something that sort of looks a bit m- Masonic, and then that becomes part of this. QAnon argument that yeah, yeah they're into it, they're one of them they're signifying the, to the other satanic pe- pedophiles that they're all in on this. It is extraordinary and to a rational person who loves reality and evidence, it's like who would believe this stuff? Massive community of people who want to believe it and it's very politically convenient uh, for the bad faith actors who can manipulate those communities to do things for them. Like attack Julie Bishop online.
2: Hi. Um, you mentioned that we've been living with conspiracies for thousands of years and that this is only a minuscule percentage of people who are pushing this QAnon stuff, albeit loudly. Um, you're Sure, we have um, uh, politicians in our parliament and in the US parliament too who push these kinds of barrows, but can we take any, any solace in that, thinking that this is just a, a short-term moment in time, a, a fad, and if not... What are the real long-term dangers that you see to our democracy?
1: Uh, Well, I've written about this for The Guardian. I call them brown shirts without borders. You know, there is is a cadre of people who have been intensely radicalised within sealed information environments who the right messages can convince to do anything. In Sydney, they were punching horses. In Melbourne, there was violence on the streets. You know, this disruption that has just taken place in Canberra. They shut down... Um, the inner city of Ottawa, like, all of these things. If you have a portable community of people who the right messages can encourage to do anything, I've said this before, like, it's not about the size of the population they represent that's the danger, it's the amount of damage they're willing to do and how they can justify it to themselves. And in America, there have been numerous incidents of domestic terrorism that have been you know prosecuted charged people going to jail who have said that they were participating in these acts of not only disruption but violence and you know civil disorder because they had believed that these things were true The Pizzagate, which was like the forerunner to to QAnon, which happened in 2016, a guy from North Carolina, young guy, couple of kids, became absolutely convinced that he was the person who was going to take out Hillary Clinton, the, you know, child-raping pedophile, by shooting up a pizza restaurant in Washington. Like, he had the guns on him. He was... he, He shot up a cupboard, thinking it was a door to this satanic basement. You know, he ended up doing four years in prison. He only got out recently... And it's like, how many of those people are we willing to tolerate? And, of course, the capacity for it, like, there is always going to be a percentage of people who are susceptible to conspiracy theories. There are going to be people in distress who will hear a manipulative message at the worst possible time and can get deployed into these things. But there is a responsibility of government to take this stuff seriously. Um, There is a responsibility in policing. Like, in this country, we have not taken the threat of the far right seriously at all. When when everybody was pouring money into counter-terrorism, it existed, quite frankly, in a racist paradigm, you know, that it was all about Islamic terrorism. And it's, like, these communities of neo-Nazis and neo-fascists and QAnon believers You know, they exist and have been recruiting and getting resourced and pumping out messages while everybody has been like, oh, yeah, no, the threat's definitely coming from this other community. That is terrifying. That is changing in Australia on the basis of a lot of people's frustration with the anti-lockdown movements, but we're not where we should be. And the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, they all have a responsibility to take this stuff seriously. Facebook could turn off this stuff tomorrow. And it doesn't, because there hasn't been the political will to actually rope them into line. And that's a real concern. We can minimise the impact of these communities the way that we minimise any kind of threat from extremists. Monitoring them. You know, keeping tabs like community education, improving things like digital literacy, creating places for people to be re-socialised so they get out of these radical movements and also to stop them being socialised into internet cults in the first place by internet platforms actually taking their responsibility as facilitators of this stuff seriously with government oversight and control. Like, all of these things can happen. If they don't happen, well, we've seen the effect of it. People died on January 6th. You know, there were people who, like, people who have planned terrorist actions and civil disruption, all of these different kinds of things. There have been murders associated with these movements. We actually have the capacity to do something about it, and as a democracy, we must. Because let me tell you, anybody who is demonising a political opponent as a satanic child-eater is not somebody who is actually campaigning for the right of a discourse, in a democratic society. That's not what's going on.
2: Um, We've got Van, time for one or two very short questions. Very short. Uh, well, Van, I enjoyed your talk. Uh, in a recent Guardian Weekly uh, article, you warned of the danger of global, uh, the global freedom movement to our democracy, as you have today. In a subsequent issue of that paper, A PhD student argued that we shouldn't dismiss uh, uh, out of hand the views of the Canberra convoy protesters, but should seek to understand them. Now, my question, are we in a situation now where, uh, just uh, as some of the German intelligentsia were sucked in by crackpot theories in the 1930s, Um, Is some of the Australian intelligentsia being sucked in uh, also um, uh, to these crackpot uh, theories or or is there a genuine uh, freedom of speech issue here? No,
1: there's a bad analysis issue and, uh, you know, one of the things I love about The Guardian is my right to vehemently disagree with other people who publish in it. There is a blind spot on the left around these people. People bring their biases. This is what I mean. People believe what they want to believe. And I've just written uh, participated in an interview for the Australian Fabians magazine about this particular issue. The people on the left have wanted to believe that the people who um, engaged with conspiracy theories and supported Donald Trump were victims of globalisation. This oppressed working class, uneducated community. If only we could lead them to the truth and if only they had university educations, and then they would have the critical faculties like we do to uh, engage and respond to this stuff and not be affected by it. That's not what the research says. The research says, overwhelmingly, these are middle-class people. They are some of the most literate and well-educated people within society. They consume more written information in a day than anybody who's got an actual working-class or blue-collar job has energy or time to do. Working class people in America do not have the money to fly down to Washington on a private jet and spend four days at the Hilton while they try to overthrow the government. That is not the experience of the American working class. And it's really frustrating that a classism that does exist on the left has totally disarmed people wanting to believe in their own mythology as opposed to what the data tells us. 40% of the people who were arrested in the first round of arrests for January 6th were small business owners and white-collar professionals. Like, this is a movement of people who are gravitating towards a mythology of superiority and righteousness because they're concerned that their social status, largely unearned, largely uninherited on the basis of material wealth, or their race privilege or their gender privilege, these kind of positions, like that they think that their status is under threat. And this is one of the reasons why they're distressed and feeling vulnerable and want to gravitate towards this adventurism. One of my favorite theorists on this is actually an American conservative called Tom Nichols, who rightly identified the people who are part of these movements as not the lumpen proletariat, but the lumpen bourgeoisie. Like people who are materially comfortable, but also want to be the centre of attention and heroes as well. You can see that in the iconography of January 6th. Those people might be dressing up like, in Canada, the majority of the people in the trucker protest, they weren't truckers. The majority of truckers in Canada are vaccinated. You know, huge communities of truckers are from an exploited and marginalised underclass of Southeast Asian Canadians. You know, this is this illusion that you know, otherwise respectable bourgeois individuals have, that it couldn't possibly be the middle class, it couldn't possibly be people with university educations who could be so vulnerable to critical thinking. It's outrageous, and it is classism, and it's one of the reasons why we have not been able to identify the problem correctly.
0: (laughs) This has to be a very short question and a short answer.
1: Okay. <laughs> Sorry. then um, you talk briefly about, I guess, the underpinnings of misogyny in this problem. Um, and I've read Laura Bates' book, I think it's Men Who Hate Women, and she talks a lot about incels. In, well, her whole book's about incels. Um, uh, I guess the role of misogyny within those incels is to recruit young boys using misogyny as a honeypot, ultimately to lure them into this uh, extremism. I feel like So much of that narrative is missed by our society of that role of misogyny in this is a bigger picture, and it's such a risk to young teenage boys to be lured in that way. Yes, I'll stop speaking. Sorry, anything about that? Well, what a wonderful question. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) To tell you all to read my book because misogyny is a gateway drug, it is a radicalisation channel, the foundations of Um, of QAnon and Pizzagate, definitely came from Gamergate, which was a misogynist uh, campaign that was run online. Um, I talk about this in... Like, if you can convince people that women are not equal, you can convince people that anyone is unequal. If, If you're getting up in the morning saying, I, in my 48% of the population, based on the on the on the gender that I identify with is inherently superior. That person, if their status is entirely based on that kind of dynamic, uh, will, if that's their identity and their sense of superiority, they'll fight for it and they'll fight for it with violence. So read my book and you will get all of the information about the wonderful world of misogyny behind this stuff.
0: And uh, With that, I'd like to thank Van for coming along and, well, for writing the book, first of all. There was a lot that I found out that I didn't know, and I'm sure you will too if you buy the book, which is available over in the uh, book tent over there, and Van will be over there afterwards signing books. Please thank her again for such an intriguing session.